All right, um, I am going to preach on a more difficult passage of Scripture today, okay? I'll just, I'll just set you up for that. I just felt like in this uh, theme that we're pursuing in 2024, that I will trust him. I think there's some, some really important things for us to uh, consider from Scripture and uh, base our, our hopes and our beliefs and our understanding of how God works in our lives. Because God is not only here during the good and sunny days of our life, but he's also here in the difficult days of our lives as well. And so we're going we're gonna to turn to the book of Job. If you have your Bible, you can just turn to the first chapter and kind of summarizing the first few verses uh, of that first chapter. Uh, we've talked about it before, so you should get it by now. But, uh, you know, Job is a righteous and upright man. He, he is noticed by God himself. God is proud of him. And he calls out attention, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him in all the earth. So Job lived a exemplary life. The situation uh, became that he experienced crushing grief and, and uh, probably all of his fears were materialized in a single day. You know, the day before, everything was wonderful, everything was good, and then the next day, everything that Job had, all of his family perished, all of his possessions were stolen and taken away, even his health uh, was affected, and uh, he sat on an ash heap in grief, he had, he had rent his, his robe, and he was sitting there grieving, uh, all of his loss. And so uh, verse 20 of chapter 1 uh, is where we'll, we'll just kind of dive in to this narrative. It says, Then Job arose, after he'd been informed of all of this calamity, tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. Isn't, isn't that an incredible response? Lost everything, and the first thing on his agenda was to worship. And he said, verse 21, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Difficult passage through Scripture. In fact, if you think you can do a better job of what I'm about to do, I want you to come up right now, okay? <laughs> um, this, this is a difficult passage to explain. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Now, we sing that often. You know, he gives and takes away, he gives and takes away. We sing that, and I wonder sometimes if we don't fully appreciate or maybe fully understand the take-away part. Um, because it can sound kind of glib, it can sound kind of trite. But the taking-away part is difficult for us, and we don't usually like it when things are 
taken away from us. You know, we're talking about trusting God. That's our theme for uh, 2024. Whatever may happen, we will trust God. We've made that declaration. Uh, But we will probably at some point, either now or later, this year, years down the road, discover that there are limits to our trust in God. Now, we maybe we would say, you know, God, I trust you in everything, every part of my life. I trust you. Whatever you decide to do, I'm on board with you. Until we find that maybe we aren't. And there are some difficult areas to trust God for. It's at times like that that we're tested and it it might be from a a past experience of our life you know where maybe somebody that we fully trusted and and were you know an important part of our life and and we put our trust in them and then they let us down and we we kind of do this thing called transference where we transfer some of those disappointments onto God Uh, maybe not in our consciousness but sometimes in our subconscious we we kind of think you know God this is on you because you could have stopped this from happening and and yet you didn't and you know experienced this loss and so it might be from some kind of experience like that the hurt of somebody who was not trustworthy in a certain area of our lives or sometimes without realizing it kind of blame god for the losses that that we experience in our lives in second kings Chapter 4, there's an interesting story here. And it kind of illustrates the range of emotions sometimes that, that we might experience. If you'll find that Second uh, Kings chapter 4, Second uh, Kings is primarily about the prophet Elisha. Now, First Kings is primarily about the prophet Elijah, okay? And uh, we know that, you know, Elijah is taken up from the earth in a whirlwind. There are chariots of fire. It's quite a dramatic uh, leaving the earth. And, and uh, Elisha is there to witness all of that. And so he, where Elijah was the primary prophet in Israel, Elisha takes over. And, and so he goes about his business, wherever the Lord calls him, he travels there. And it seemed to be that Elisha would often travel through a certain part of Israel, and uh, the Bible doesn't name her, but there is a Shunammite woman who lived in this location. She lived a life of faith, and she was honored and well-respected in her community. And she noticed that Elisha often traveled through their community on his way to other places. And so she proposes this to her husband. She says, why don't we build the man of God a place where he can stay and he can rest? And when he comes through here, he can just enjoy the the comfort of the room that we build him. And I think, you know, maybe there was some ulterior motive is that we will receive the blessing of having the man of God stay with us. And so it seemed like a a great idea. And they did. They built a room on top of their uh, home and uh, invited Elisha to stay with them whenever he passed through their community, which he did. And she had been so nice and such a blessing to Elisha, is that one day when he was in his room, 
his servant Gehazi was there as well. And he was just wondering, what can we do for this Shunammite woman that has been so kind and thoughtful uh, to us? And, you know, they were thinking up ideas. Can we say something to the captain of the army? Uh, can we put a good word for her to the king? Or, you know, that she would receive some kind of favor uh, from them. And then Gehazi kind of hits on it. He, like, you know, the, the right thing. And he says, she does not have a son. And, uh, and Elisha immediately says, call the Shunammite woman. So it's like, of course. So she comes there to the prophet's room, and he, well, we'll catch it up in, uh, in the narrative here. Okay, so 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 16. And this is what he says to the Shunammite woman. He says, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. You shall have a baby. Now, you would think that, especially in this time and culture, uh, being barren, if you were a woman and not producing children, was a, a great shame and reproach. And uh, in, especially a, a son was favored because it would carry on the family name and uh, the family's inheritance and blessing and the land of Israel would continue through them and, and for their descendants as well. And so for a woman to experience barrenness in this culture was was of a great shame. And, uh, and so um, the Shunammite woman responds in a way that we may not expect. You know, it's like, you shall bear a son. In about a year's time, you will bear a son. And you'd think, you know, she'd be happy and glad. Uh, we'll pick it up at, at verse 16 again. About this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, Men of God, do not lie to your maidservant. Wow, he, he touched on a fear of hers. <laughs> Don't you lie to me. Probably not what the prophet expected. Sometimes news brings fear. And even what maybe should be good news touches on a place of fear in our heart. And it certainly did at this point with the woman. So he says, no, but you shall. In a year's time, bear a son, and you will embrace him. And it comes to pass, just as Elisha said, and then, kind of condensing a lot of material here, uh, suffice it to say, the boy uh, grows. He is now accompanying his father in the harvest in the field. And then one day he complains to his father that he says, my head, my head. And what the problem was is not uh, specified there. But anyways, uh, the father turns to his servant and says, take this boy and take him to his mother immediately. And which is done. And the woman, the Shunammite woman, embraces her little boy and he dies in her arms. And so she takes him upstairs to the prophet's room, lays him on the prophet's bed, and closes the door behind her, and then sets off to find Elisha, the prophet. And uh, lots of great detail there. It's great reading and all, but uh, 
She finds Elisha. She's discouraged. Gehazi tries to pull her away, and, and yet she embraces the, the feet of the prophet Elijah. And Elijah is saying, boy, the Lord has hidden this from me. I, I don't know what's going on here. And finally, uh, he asks the Shunammite woman, what is the problem? Verse 28, she said, did I ask a son of you, my Lord? Did I not say, do not deceive me? So her worst fear had come to pass. She was afraid to receive the good news that what she had longed for would be taken away. And yet her son here is, has been taken away. And so, again, some great reading. Elisha goes back to where the Shunammite woman lives. He goes up to his chambers. And through very unusual circumstances, he prays. And the young boy comes back to life. He is presented to his mother, and uh, she worships the Lord for what he has done. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You know, you and I, I think, are much more comfortable when the Lord gives, right? Don't you love to receive blessings from the Lord, right? Oh, that's good. You know, I've, I'm blessed. I am blessed, you know. But we're not so good with the takeaway part. You know, the chorus that we sing, you know, you give and take away. We probably prefer to sing it, you give and you give some more, right? We want to leave out the takeaway part. You know, we look at the story of Job. Um, it's really the same story. And what we learn from all of that is, you know, there are things that are out of our control. Life is not in our control. Control is really an illusion. Isn't that true? I mean, we all do what we can to control certain outcomes in our life, you know. Um, I have even eaten kale before. Why? Because it's good for you. What does that mean? That means you won't get some terrible disease. Well, it tastes like I'm going to, but, um, you know, we, we watch our diets, try to eliminate, you know, try to bring some measure of control to certain outcomes we don't want. Um, you know, we invest our retirements, you know, conservatively so the market doesn't, you know, crash and take them away. We exercise, again, to kind of preserve and bring control to certain outcomes. Or, you know, we homeschool our children so that they'll be good kids and they won't be influenced by the world. And, and uh, you know, all of those things, you know, we work our businesses and, and we, you know, we want them to thrive and, and uh, we... Uh, do all of these things to try to bring some measure of control to things we ultimately can't control. And sometimes the things that we worked hard for seem to be taken away, confirming our worst fears. You know, Job uh, seemed to be driven to try to control 
certain outcomes. He loved his family and uh, would, uh, you know, bring them together often. It looks like a beautiful family life, you know, that he had many sons and daughters. The daughters of Job were legendary in their beauty. They were most beautiful daughters in, in the land of where Job lived. And, uh, and he would bring them together and they would feast and, and enjoy each other's company. And then, and then Job would... Uh, sacrifice and, and pray over them. Let's, we'll pick it up there in, in Job 1.5. It says, And so it was, when the days of feasting had run their course, that Job would send and sanctify them. Okay? He would pray over them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job regularly. What, what's Job doing here? He's trying to bring a measure of control to ultimately what is not controllable. And his fear that his children would somehow not experience the favor of God was more than he could bear. And thus did Job regularly. He worked at it. That his children, his sons, would experience God's favor and blessing. And, you know, we do the same thing in some manner uh, in our lives. We want good outcomes. We want the things that we've worked hard for. We want the people that we love, you know, to do well. And, uh, you know, so we take all kinds of different measures and, and we want good things to happen. But the truth is, there is really not much we can actually control. Control is an illusion, and even when we experience the taking away, the best thing that we can do is to trust God. You think, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Something's subtracted from me, something is taken away from me, I'm still to trust God? Well, what's your alternative? What can you control? Really, we have no alternatives except to trust God in that. You know, I uh, have a hard time finding an analogy that, that doesn't seem trite or, or frivolous in comparison to some of the, really, some of the weightier things that we experience in life. But, you know, if, uh, you know, maybe we're fortunate enough to, you know, go during the cold part of our our winter here in Alaska to maybe a, a warmer climate of some sort. And maybe, maybe it's our children we go to see, maybe grandchildren, you know. I don't go to see my children. I go to see my grandchildren. And, uh, you know, we love that. And, and uh, you know, we do it as often as we can. And, and uh, you know, sooner or later it occurs to us, you know, hey, uh, you know, this is maybe cost, you know, costly to, to do this, to rent a car, or, you know, whatever it takes to do that. Maybe we should buy a car and we could keep it there at, you know, our grandchildren's house. And, uh, you know, we work it out and we say to our kids, okay, uh, how would it be, you know, if, you, if we bought, we purchased a car and we kept it here? Now, when we're not here, you can use it all you want, okay? You can drive it, you know, you can, 
you know, do whatever you, you need with the car. It's yours until we come back and then, you know, we are going to use it. Okay, that'd be great. Wow, that's really wonderful of you. And, uh, and so we do, we buy a car, it works out great. We hand off the keys uh, to, uh, you know, maybe people that we love and trust here. And we go home and a year later or more, you know, we come back and we say, okay, we're back, we need the car. And they're like, what are you talking about? You know, we, we like this car. You know, it, this is important. How are we going to get by without this car? And uh, you say, well, that was, that was the deal. Remember, we own it, right? And you can use it when we don't need it, but when we need it, we need it back. Well, that's not happening because, you know, we can't get by without it. And all of a sudden, you know, it's a matter of, oh boy, what did we do here? Don't want to relinquish it, even though we understood that my name is on the title. I own the car. And... So therefore, if I need it, I want it back. Well, we're talking about cars and all of that, awkward situations. But the point of the matter is, is that God gives us everything. God owns absolutely everything. That's my first point is that everything I am and everything I have belongs to God. His name is on the title. I am but a steward of all that he's entrusted to me. Do you remember in uh, the Gospels, Jesus tells a story about his, uh, a king who was going to go on a long trip and uh, assigned his wealth to three servants. One got five talents of gold, one received two talents of gold, and the one received one talent of gold, which did not belong to the servants. It belonged to the king. And the king goes away, and the one receiving five talents of gold invests and and trades, and uh, when the king returns, there's ten talents of gold. Now, they had use of all of that wealth while the king was gone. But they knew this, is that when the king returned, it belonged to him again. And, uh, and so they would invest, but they had the use of the wealth. And uh, so the one with five talents gained five more, the one with two talents gained two more, and then the one with the one just returned. And, and he says, I knew that you were a harsh man, and and that uh, what you gave me didn't belong to me, so here it is yours back, just the way you gave it, back, gave it to me. And, and the king was displeased with him. But, but sometimes you and I forget the part that, you know, God has given us everything. If you own a, a home, that belongs to God. If you own a vehicle, that belongs to God. If you have savings and investments, those ultimately belong to God. And it's difficult for us to think in that way. Um, Psalm 89 verse 11 is one of many scriptures that kind of share the same sort of thought and, and mean. Psalm uh, 89 11 says, The heavens are yours, 
The earth also is yours. The world and all its fullness, you have founded them. So if God has created everything, that means that God owns everything. And everything means how much? Everything. It's difficult for us to think of everything we have as a stewardship, not really belonging to us. Oh yeah, we buy and sell and trade and all of that, but we do it to enhance who it belongs to. So when we say everything belongs to God, it's everything, even my life belongs to God. Whether I live or whether I die, whether I, those I love live or die, my life, their life belongs to God. God is the giver of life. Life belongs to him. As much as man would like to find a way to create life outside of the womb and without, outside the process that, that God designed, they have met with no success. Life is something we can't control. <laughs> Life is something that is beyond our ability to produce. Except for how God designed life to come into existence. So we have to understand that everything I am and everything I have belongs to God. I am fortunate, I am blessed that he has entrusted what I have to me. And it is up to me to, to use that well. But ultimately, should God need it and ask for it back, it belongs to him. So we don't always think of the taking away part of you know, he gives and he takes away as happy or good for us. But I, I want you to know that, that even in God's sovereignty, and that's really what this is all about, who's in charge here? You know, it's like, yeah, God, you can have everything except this. This belongs to me. Well, then God is not sovereign. You know, God is is sovereign, that means that there is nothing that exists that would be successful in overthrowing him. There is not one rogue atom in all the universe that exists outside of the will of God. Okay? And, and yet sometimes we, because we are familiar with it, and maybe because, you know, we've done the, the buying and selling and the trading and all of that, we, we come to think of everything as, as ours. But even when it's taken away, it does not cancel the nature of God. Jeremiah 29, 11. It may be a verse of scripture that you have memorized at some point in your past or uh, and if not, uh, I would, it'd be a great verse of scripture to memorize because it tells us of the nature of God. And Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. What are those thoughts? 
your thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. In the taking away that occasionally happens in our life, it does not cancel that promise. You know, there are things sometimes that we want and maybe even obtain that are not good for us. You know, I have uh, grandchildren that I love very much. But there's sometimes I take things away from them. Right? And uh, because they're not good for them and nothing good is going to happen if they have that thing. Even if they want it really bad. If they were to lay their hand on a knife, uh, that would be something I would take away. Why? For their good. Now, they may not think about it that way at the moment. But it's for their good. Now, maybe later we can restore that to them and, and uh, they would use it responsibly in, in not harming themselves. So understand that God sometimes removes things from our lives uh, for our good. Uh, we... Um, mentioned, I think one of Sunday or two ago, uh, that, that God's main objective, his total focus on us is not how comfortable we are, not how good we're feeling or not feeling. Those are not the primary concerns of God. God's primary concerns is getting you to eternity. That's what God cares about. He wants you to spend eternity with him. And the here and now, uh, comfort is, is not his, his total priority. Um, so understand the fact that God is sovereign, the fact that God owns everything, you know, it's easy on the upside when he bestows his blessings on us. We like to call them blessings when they're, when they're good. Um, we, feel, we feel good about that. It's easy on the upside, but it's difficult on the downside. Sometimes the taking away is a blessing too. My little granddaughter gets a hold of a sharp knife. The removal of that knife from her is actually a blessing. Right? I saw something I probably shouldn't mention. I haven't really had the... Th- time to really think it through, but it was an interesting thing to ponder. It's like when you hand a child a cell phone, you are ending their childhood. I thought, wow, that's something to ponder. I don't know if I agree with it, but it's something to think about. When you hand a child a cell phone, you are ending their childhood. And, uh, you know, so sometimes we... uh, you know, we take things away for the good, for the long-term good. And, and God works similarly in our own lives. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 19, Paul is writing the Philippian church. And he is writing from a Roman prison. Okay, he is, he is in Rome and he is in prison. He is, has chains that are on him, shackles that are keeping him uh, imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. Now, it's kind of one of those things that, that doesn't seem to make sense for us. You know, we think, man, if we're preaching the gospel, 
um, you know, things should go well. We, we won't get in trouble or, you know, we're certainly not going to end up in prison and chained to a guard if we're doing God's work and God's will. Well, this has happened to Paul and, and uh, because he was preaching the gospel and because of his stand for Jesus, he sits in a Roman jail. And he's writing to the Philippian church. Um, if you are looking, you know, at the New Testament, Philippians is one of the uh, epistles that are uh, letters that Paul wrote that are called prison epistles, okay? So they're written from this Roman jail, and Philippians is one of those. And this is what he's talking about when we open this uh, passage here in Philippians 1, verse 19. He says, for I know that this, my imprisonment, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness as always, so now also, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul is, is calling this out. He says that Christ be magnified if, if uh, preaching for him results in life or whether it results in my death, it is to magnify Christ. So I'm immaterial here. Whether I live or I die, that's up to him. And then he goes on to say, for to me, to live is Christ. That's good. But to die is gain. It's even better. Because <laughs> I spend eternity with him. What a, what a perspective on life. It, he fully understands that this life that I'm living is really not in my control. And it really isn't, you know, my choice uh, what happens to me. It belongs to God. And so whether I live or whether I die, Christ be magnified. And to continue living, that's good. It means Christ is preached. But if I die, hey, that's okay too. <laughs> What a, what a perspective. It's an eternal perspective that is admittedly difficult for us to adopt as our own. So what Job uttered in his grief as he worshipped the Lord, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's true. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 7, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. I think this is a good way to understand how much we own, how much belongs to us. Everything you can carry to the next life is yours. And as Job said, I came naked into this world and I'm going to leave the same way. That's how much we own. So if we understand that everything I have belongs to God and God can use it at his discretion anytime we begin to understand what trust in him is all about. Uh, I think I've made this point before, but I, I want to emphasize it again. Is that my second point is this, is that God will not sacrifice the eternal for the temporary. 
not even to make us feel better will God give us something of a temporary nature in place of the eternal. It's just not in his nature. So the story that Jesus tells or the analogy that he makes, they're in Jerusalem and they are observing people of great wealth and uh, talking about all these riches. And Jesus uh, talks about this. Uh, Mark, Mark chapter 10, verse 23, about the, how difficult it is for those who are rich to enter the kingdom of God. And they're standing by a gate in the wall of Jerusalem. And Jesus said, this is the difficulty for somebody who's wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's like a camel going through the eye of a needle. Now, there's some debate whether, you know, what the needle was. But, uh, you know, it's like if it was an actual needle, and I can't even, let alone a camel, I can't even get a thread through a needle anymore. But there's also the possibility that there was a gate in Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle, and it was very small. And for a camel to pass through that, you know, coming from the outside, and camels were used to carry goods and trade things, you know, uh, in order for a camel to come through the eye of the needle, they had to unload all of his cargo, and then the, the camel had to be uh, taken down to its, to its knees in kind of a crouching position and, and get shuffled through the eye of the needle, and then they'd have to reload the camel once again before they could take it to wherever it needed to go. Either way, Jesus is trying to convey it's difficult. Why? Because we get attached to what's ours. And, uh, and then Peter follows up and he says this, we have left all and followed you. Jesus, you're right. And whatever you have left behind, go down to verse 30, Jesus said, you, will you not receive a hundredfold again in the age to come and eternal life? So understand this, is that we are playing an eternal game, if you will. And God is not going to sacrifice the eternal for something temporary. And uh, sometimes he gives and sometimes he takes away, but it is all for our good. And here's, here's the hope, here's the good news at the end of this. Is God is able to restore everything that's taken away. That is a story that, that is told over and over and over again throughout the entire Bible. That God is able to restore what was taken away. The dead can come back to life. What was taken can be restored. You know, Job couldn't see it in the midst of his pain. The, Sh the Shunammite woman could not see it as her son was dying. What had happened to them had confirmed their worst fears. Job, in the, in the book of Job, uh, confessed. He says, everything I feared greatly has come upon me. You know, sometimes we actually create the very circumstances that we fear. 
Don't concentrate on your fears. Don't live in your fears because you'll create the very thing that you fear. And uh, and Job confessed the same thing. He says, what I feared greatly has, has come upon me. And, and the Shunammite woman, uh, don't lie to me, man of God. Don't tell me I'm going to have a son and then he gets taken away from me. Confirms their worst fear. It hits right in the area that they tried to control and protect. And it undid everything that they had done to protect themselves. Abraham, who was given the promise to be a father of a multitude. If you remember the Abrahamic promise, God calls Abraham out of his tent at night. And he says, Abraham, look up in the sky. How many stars are there? Well, there's a multitude. There's more than I can count. And God says, that will be the number of your descendants. Abraham looks inside the tent, and there's just Sarah in there. Not a multitude in there. And Abraham, at 100 years of age, and Sarah, at 90 years of age, they conceive and bear Isaac, the son of promise, through whom the promise of Abraham will be fulfilled. And then God comes to him and he says, Abraham, I'm going to ask you for Isaac back. Abraham says, Isaac, we're going on a trip. And they journey until they see the place that God has prepared for them. And Abraham lays the son of promise through whom all of his descendants will come and lays him on this sacrifice, this altar of sacrifice and nearly gets the job done when angelically he is prohibited from taking Isaac's life. Hebrews 11, which we love to read, talks about the great examples of faith, those who demonstrated faith in in an extraordinary way, uh, are recorded there in Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 10. It says, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. But one thing that we need to trust God in is that when God gives, I mean, who needs to teach us that? But when God takes away, we need to see beyond just the moment. We need to see beyond just the pain of what we're experiencing. That God in some way will bring that which is dead back to life. Maybe it's a dream that you have. Maybe it's a business that you've always wanted to run. And it seems like these things get taken away. Maybe what you invested was in the stock market and that took that away. Or maybe it's somebody that you love passed away and you weren't, that's not what you want. 
It's hard to trust God in times like that. What are we going to do? But let me say this. It's at the difficult times, it's at the hard times that trust in God matters more than ever. And we'll trust him. Job, so he said, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. So I don't know what 2024 may bring. I hope that it's full of blessings, the give part, right? And there certainly will be some of those blessings in our life, but it might, might be a year where something gets taken away. I know we don't treasure the thought, but blessed be the name of the Lord. He is trustworthy. He can be counted upon told you this was going to be a difficult thing to preach. But I want you to bow your heads right now, would you? Just pray, Lord, we don't know one day in the future. We don't know what will happen tomorrow. But Lord, we're, we are holding on to you. We trust you. You see the future. You give and you take away Blessed be the name of the Lord. And Lord, help us to live that out. And Lord, we confess the give part, we love. The take away part, we need help with. And Lord, I just pray today, Lord, that whatever comes in this year, we will be able to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Lord, I pray for those who are going through difficulty and pain right this very minute. Lord, it's hard to see the good in certain things. And Lord, certainly we do not have the wisdom or the knowledge to explain what that is at times. But Lord, you do. And Lord, we just pray that you would give grace and help in our time of need. Lord, I pray for those, Lord, who, uh, Lord, no matter what 2020 holds, that that uh, whether it's the adding and the giving, whether it's the subtraction and the taking away, Lord, that we will understand it is for our good. We may not know how. We may not be able to see it. But blessed be the name of the Lord. And we pray it all in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.